uh, seven minutes past the hour, the typical time that we get things rolling here, and I wanted to welcome uh, everybody to uh, this uh, uh, Fairbanks Center uh, event, uh, an event that uh, uh, occurs during our 60th anniversary year. Uh, we all know how important numbers are in Chinese culture. I think I saw a story in the paper on the weekend about two and a half million dollars that was spent for a license plate in Hong Kong uh, that uh, when read in Cantonese, the numbers on the plate said, uh, get rich quickly or, or, or something like that. That was worth two and a half million dollars to somebody who seems to me probably already was pretty rich, uh, but I, I guess not rich enough or, or not quickly enough. Uh, 60 is, of course, one, uh, one cycle in the uh, Tiangan Dijir system, and we are looking at a 60, uh, year, uh, 60 years of the Fairbanks Center, uh, and uh, the events this year uh, are all uh, arrayed around a set of topics uh, that uh, have uh, come to take a very important part in the calendar and in the priorities of Fairbanks Center faculty and uh, associates. Uh, today is uh, the turn of the Gender Studies Workshop, uh, and uh, the organizer for today is uh, Professor Ellen Widmer, who's been an associate, oh, she's a graduate uh, here at Harvard, uh, and has been an associate at the Fairbanks Center for a very long time, professor, of course, at uh, Wellesley University, and well known to everybody here uh, for her work in uh, Chinese women's writing uh, and in traditional uh, fiction as well. Our, uh, the topic today, uh, uh, actually, I should say who I am, I'm Mark Elliott. <laughs> uh, I'm the former director of the uh, Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. I stepped down from that position at the end of last year with very mixed feelings to take on the role of Vice Provost for International Affairs at Harvard. And I'm really happy because this, this event was organized when I was still director and I was kind of sorry I wasn't going to be the one to do the intros because that was going to go to Michael Sony, uh, the new director of the Fairbanks Center, but as luck would have it, Professor Sony has a commitment in New York uh, today uh, uh, related to the Regional Studies East Asia program, and uh, very sadly uh, is unable to be here. But his misfortune is my good fortune, uh, and that I get to play Fairbanks Center for a day. It's like deja vu uh, for me. So uh, on behalf of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, welcome to you all. Uh, to today's uh, workshop uh, symposium on the birth of Chinese feminism with a truly all-star cast. Uh, normally the gender studies workshop meets in a relatively smaller room right. uh, upstairs and the original plans were for a gender studies workshop like any other gender studies workshop. But when I saw the names that were listed, uh, Professors Rooney, Leo, Carl, uh, and co, I uh, quickly got in touch with uh, uh, Jennifer Rudolph, our executive director, and I said, uh, paraphrasing Richard Dreyfus in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger room. <laughs> uh, and so here we are in Sci Auditorium. Uh, the uh, speakers today uh, really need no introduction. I'll be brief. Uh, Lydia Liu, our own uh, PhD uh, from Harvard. Uh, now at Columbia after, uh, of course, uh, distinguished uh, spells teaching uh, both at uh, UC Berkeley uh, and at uh, the University of Michigan, uh, uh, the author of uh, quite a number of, of monographs uh, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, articles. Uh, we're very familiar with all of Lydia's, uh, Lydia's work. Uh, she's now the Wun Sun Tan Professor 
uh, in the Humanities at Columbia. She's director of the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society and founding director of Tsinghua, the Tsinghua Columbia Center for Translingual and Transcultural Studies at Tsinghua. So it sounds to me as though she has at least three different jobs, but Lydia <laughs> manages to be productive in whatever environment they put her in. Uh, next to Professor Liu is uh, Professor uh, Rebecca Carl, uh, whom uh, uh, we, I haven't seen Rebecca in many years, uh, probably since an AAS in Boston some time ago, but we first met actually when uh, we were both still graduate students. She is now Associate Professor of History and East Asian Studies at NYU, uh, and uh, well known for uh, uh, the, uh, uh, her first book, Staging China, Staging the world. Staging the world, excuse me. <laughs> I'm not so uh, modest. <laughs> uh, and uh, has a, an, a book uh, on Mao, uh, published in 2010, and is the author of a forthcoming book, The Magic of Concepts, Essays on Philosophy, Economics, and Culture in 20th Century uh, China. Uh, and then uh, Dorothy Ko, a professor of history at uh, Barnard. Uh, Dorothy, also a very uh, dear friend and colleague. Uh, we were both at UC together in, on the West Coast, uh, uh, where uh, it never got this cold, uh, ever. Uh, uh, again, uh, uh, one of the uh, leading figures in uh, the history of gender and women in early modern uh, China. Uh, her uh, revolutionary work on foot binding uh, attracted uh, very wide attention and won uh, quite a number of prizes, co-editor of a number of books. The three of them uh, came together in this project, The Birth of Chinese Feminism, about which we will be hearing uh, much more today, uh, a book published, uh, I think, by Columbia, yes. is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, three years ago, uh, which is a, uh, well, I'll, I'll let Lydia and uh, Rebecca and Dorothy uh, explain uh, more about that. Uh, what makes today really interesting, I think, from the Fairbanks Center point of view, uh, is that we have somebody who is not a China specialist, who will be the discussant uh, for uh, uh, the uh, workshop today, and this is Professor Ellen Rooney, uh, whom we welcome from uh, Brown University, where she's Chair and Professor of Modern Culture and Media Studies, and also Professor of English. Uh, she is a, a well-recognized authority on uh, the novel, as well as on uh, feminism. Uh, she has uh, published uh, uh, Seductive Reasoning, Pluralism as the Problematic of Contemporary Literary Theory, edited the Cambridge Ca Companion to Feminist uh, Literary Theory, and has a book out, uh, book out uh, about, what, 10 years ago or so? The Semi-Private Room? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, I mention uh, the fact, or stress the fact that she's not a China specialist, so that uh, we must all curb the tendency that I have, and I know most of us in the room have, when we start talking about China studies, to slip in all of our China studies words. Thank you. Lydia, I turn the floor over to you. Ellen, 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 do you want to? Do you yeah, consider yeah. that you set an example there because you did quite the opposite? <laughs> so I'm uh, throwing in a very quick uh, P.S. My, oh, sorry, Ellen. 
Yes, well, that's okay. I figured out it was my turn. My name is Ellen Widmer, and I'm one of four organizers of the Gender Studies Workshop, and I just wanted to say a quick hello and greeting on behalf of the other, the others, uh, uh, Elizabeth Remick and Nicole Neuendorp and Y.E. Lee, um, and also to thank the Fairbank Center, which has been so supportive of this workshop. I counted up the years today, and Mark is talking about anniversaries and things. It's 25 years since that the Fairbank Center has been supporting us, and this is, of course, one of our biggest events ever. We've had them as small as four people in the room, but this is quite a, quite a bit uh, different. And then lastly, I'd like to, of course, thank the people that have made the difficult journey from New York and to, to Boston. I understand they had a wonderful time chatting on the train. Um, and for their extremely interesting book, I, still, I have to say, I still don't quite understand it. So I need a little help from them today. Also from Ellen Rooney, who's going to make the wonderful connection between Chinese feminism and world feminism, which I had never thought about at all. So I'm going to be quiet now and turn it over to Lydia, who will lead, lead us from now on. Thank you, Ellen. I, th I think I should say congratulations to Fairbank Center uh, for its 60th birthday. And, and thank you, uh, uh, Mark. It's uh, wonderful to be here. And I remember Fairbank Center used to be on the opposite, on the opposite side of the street, yeah. right? Okay. Um, now it's nice to be uh, here. And also with my uh, colleagues and friends here, and uh, Ellen Rooney, uh, whom I just met. And uh, thank you for joining us. And, and Ellen Whitmer, for organizing this. It's a lot of work. By the way, we had a very smooth ride <laughs> here. Wonderful weather. We thought it was just wonderful to come out here and, uh, and be with this uh, audience. Thank you for coming. Um, now, uh, I thought uh, we'll, um, I'll just quickly uh, uh, give you some background as to how we started working together on this uh, Book. I think we are not there yet. Um, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, we're gonna have uh, uh, Rebecca, no, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy uh, uh, give us some passages from the book that we have translated, and as um, uh, explain some of the main uh, positions we take in reflecting on those passages. And Rebecca will do the same uh, with a different essay, and then that will be followed by my own uh, couple of passages. And so we're, we're gonna, you're going to follow us through the passages that we'll pro uh, project on the screen, because we can assume that you have, you have the book with you or you have read the book. And then uh, after that, uh, Ellen Rooney will give us her comments. So this is the, uh, the format. All right. Uh, uh, how, did it, how did we think of uh, translating this group of uh, thinkers from the late Qing? Um, uh, back in 2007, um, we uh, at Columbia organized a workshop called Living Text. Rethinking China and the world, in the sense that Rebecca insisted <laughs> on rethinking China and the world in the late Qing. And it was a sort of a closed door workshop. And we were going through some late Qing texts, including Zhang Taiyan, including He Yinzhen, uh, especially the journal, uh, which was 
fairly well known in the late Qing, Natural Justice, Tian Yi Bao, or Tian Yi. Um, then uh, we discovered that uh, uh, He Yinzhen was someone uh, uh, who needed to be rediscovered. Uh, we were quite fascinated by a lot of the things that she put in the essays, theoretical essays that uh, got published in Natural Justice, uh, reflecting on uh, her contemporary world, but a lot of these critiques were directed to global capitalism, to the labor practices, and to gender inequality, which were quite relevant to, to, to our own world. And then we reflected on the state of feminist theory at that time, including now, and we were not very satisfied with where it was going. So we thought by bringing He Yinzhen back reviving her, um, we might be able to contribute something to uh, feminist theoretical discussion. So that was the background. We started translating the year after uh, 1907, 09. And then after we did our first drafts, we convened a workshop, invited uh, people from uh, a lot of places, um, non-China specialists, feminist theorists from uh, other universities uh, from Scotland. Um, so then we, we asked them to read our drafts. I mean, these people were so gracious. They read our drafts, uh, uh, translations, especially He Yinzhen. And we asked them to fly to Colombia and gave us their feedback, and specifically requesting that if you can identify a similar figure in India, in Egypt, and other places, we would like to compare notes. So that led to this uh, workshop that you see. Um, and it was extremely productive. People were so generous with their time. And uh, a lot of well-known feminist theorists came and shared their views. So we benefited from, from them and graduate students too. Graduate students participated in the workshop, and, and then later we involved them in some of them in the translation project. The three of us then uh, taught a class together on this very subject. So we worked a long time on this group of texts. I also wanted to mention that um, uh, this book includes uh, some of the seminal texts by He Yinzhen, who is known usually as He Zhen. Uh, or better known as Liu Shipei's wife. Uh, but actually, she uh, published a lot of her essays in He Yinzhen. Uh, we, we, can, we can talk about that, uh, the name issue, if people have any questions. Um, we also decided to include uh, some other important foundational texts, including one by Jin Tianhe uh, called Women's Bell. And this was translated by Michael Hill, uh, uh, and proof read by Deborah, Deborah Sang, Sangzlan. Uh, a lot of collective work, and some of the other essays by Liang Qichao, and uh, some of the other things were translated by our students who uh, took our seminar. I think I covered ground, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and then the book came out to, uh, already three years ago. Okay. Three years ago, and we got very interesting feedbacks. Um, uh, I hope that uh, you will be interested in 
um, especially Heinz's work, we just, our goal was to make them available uh, to people who wanted to think about uh, not just China, or late Qing uh, intellectual history, but also about the world, not only about the history of uh, uh, modern history of the world, but also our current situation. I think uh, we could revive her and treat her text as living texts, so we don't take her text as simply something that got published in the past and buried in, in, in the archives. Um, okay, I think I will uh, stop here and let Dorothy go. Great, thank you. Um, I want to thank Mark again, um, the two Ellens um, who have been the, a new friend and old friend and also my collaborators. This is really one of the m most enjoyable collaborative experience that I've had in my um, career. And um, I am a historian, so I get stuck with the history. Um, essay that He Yinzhen wrote, uh, fully rendered in 63 pages of dense single-space English text uh, in the book. Uh, what I want to do is to read three passages from it or with you uh, in order to set a stage for He Yinzhen's um, not so much historical consciousness, but her kind of very feisty, um, announcement that if you want to know why women in China are suffering, uh, as she wrote it in Japan in 1907, let me tell you, it's the totality of all of Chinese history, all of Chinese tradition, and everything that men did in it, I am going to hold them responsible because they were, are, the powers that be. Um, this is He Yingzhen at her best or worst form in my case because I almost went insane. Um, in it, there, He Yingzhen essentially uh, cited almost all of the translated text um, by Yan Fu. Also, the entire commentary tradition uh, of the Confucian classics in order to prove her point. Men in savage societies uh, regarded women as communally shared and women also treated their men as communally shared. I mean, those of us who remember uh, 19th century sociology would, rem would at least vaguely recognized savage society, totem societies. These came from a particular version of history, and particularly in this case, uh, He Yingzhen read uh, Edward Gent's uh, book, History of Politics, that was translated uh, by Yan Fu uh, under the name of Shi Hui Xinchuan. So, um, this is the kind of history that He Yingzhen started her thinking and critique. History to her is the root of women's oppression. But she goes on, there are other enemies. Take the etymology of the Chinese written character, Fu. The character is both a term referring to someone's wife and a generic term for adult women. And the same thing for the corresponding character Fu, 
which refers to someone's husband, but may also be used as a generic term for an adult male. And here, I think that we see He Yingzhen's particular sensitivity to language. Uh, her being a classically trained philologist, um, she did something that actually many Chinese um, teachers would do, which is to take apart uh, the, the, the composition and origins of Chinese characters in order to read deeper meanings into them. But here we see her kind of very radical idea at the time before Wen Yan was even invented um, or countenanced that the very language with which we think our thoughts is actually part of the problem. She goes on, do, do these uh, etymologies not provide the evidence for the fact that a man used to have more than one specific wife and a woman more than one specific husband? So she said, well, wait a minute, there really was a material, uh, lineal matriarchal society like Jang's and uh, Herbert Spencer hinted, and in that matrilineal matriarchal society, there was no system of marriage because everybody slept around with everybody else. Wasn't that fun? Um, and this was actually for those of us who who are. Uh, into Seito or these beginnings of Japanese feminist thinking. Um, there are feminist uh, or scholars in Japan who still insist on um, tracing that matrilineal past from the Heian period and so on. Um, but um, here, what we see is one of He Yingzhen's very, very particular insistence that is both very traditional and perhaps very modern to our sense. And that is she really believed that marriage not only is the root of women's oppression, but also marriage is also the, the way to restore a kind of gender equality and absolute balance between men and women. So what she's going after essentially is uh, a, a differential of women are stuck with monogamy in um, the Confucian patriarchal family, whereas men could have as many women as they want or could keep up with uh, as a sign of their power because women really um, serve as the uh, marker of the status of men. So uh, she said, for example, uh, the transition from matrilineal rule to patriarchal rule signal the beginning of a social hierarchy that put men over women, uh, dignifying the former and degrading the latter. Men have long imposed the system of monogamy upon women. So today in America, we think that monogamy is a very liberating um, institution for men and women, you know, one man, one wife. But He Yingzhen said, no, 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 monogamy always, it's only uh, it, uh, uh, worked for men. A woman is allowed to marry one husband, whereas a man can marry as many wives as he can afford. 
Um, I am absolutely stunned. I'm absolutely stunned at two moves that Ho Yingzhen is making here. One is the, um, what I said earlier, that gender inequality, the lack of equality between husband and wife, men having privileges of many wives, uh, while wives don't, is the root of all social hierarchies. And this is so fundamental to He Yingzhen's feminism, and this is also why we think that feminism or the liberation of women is fundamental to all justice and all uh, revolution. So it's not just that she happens to be a feminist while fighting against uh, class justice um, like Bernie Sanders. Uh, she really thinks that you have to be a feminist first and foremost, otherwise you've already gone over to the other side. Um, absolutely stunning. And she later on has long passages that we're not reading talking about how sexually repressed and how horribly uh, um, painful for a wife to be sitting in an empty chamber waiting for her man to come home and he never comes home. So uh, somehow this more than a sense of He Yingzhen really put female pleasure and the pleasure of a wife as actually the foundation of her subjectivity and yet at the same time um, she holds on to marriage ultimately uh, as the way also to absolute equality and restoration of justice in society. So um, the Oops, sorry. the third passage is just here for fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want you to experience my anguish as I was confronting He Yingzhen's rage against the entire Chinese history, the entire Chinese civilization, and the entire Confucian Li Jiao, Li Zhi, ritual and social institutions, unequal funerary rights for uh, women, unequal uh, access to resources, and ultimately women being absolutely shut off from the, the most important institution through which Confucian scholars, men, uh, perpetuated and reproduced their privilege, which is the very act of practicing scholarship and writing itself. So a third aspect of tyranny of man's rule is manifest is the entire scholastic tradition of China. In the age of high antiquity, man treated learning as their own private prerogative. No wonder every school of thought was founded by men, and every book from the three dynasties in antiquities contains words that degrade women while elevating men. We've heard this many, many times before, but somehow He Yingzhen makes a transhistorical argument. Chinese, every single word written in China, everyone who has written, including that female bandit Ban Zhao, uh, a Confucian woman who taught women how to be subservient is a traitor. So 
there is not a single good person in that entire tradition. Scholars and officials have held fast to the teachings from the Han and Song dynasties as the golden standards. Who knows how many of our fellow women were killed because of them. And He Yingzhen did not use kill metaphorically. In 30 pages uh, that follows, she out Lined, uh, describe the torturous death of every single woman in the hands of male scholars you can find in the dynastic histories and the commentaries. So all Confucian teachings are teachings that kill Ren people. We heard it from Lu Xun from many decades later, but here she was, 1907. Okay, how to how to how to follow up on the revenge of women? Um, uh, you uh, you work um, labor. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a uh, also a piece that she wrote in 1907 on the question of women's labor. And um, I just also first want to say that uh, I too thank Mark and Ellen's and and uh, this has been also one of the great collaborations. I think. Uh, often people don't think of the three of us as actually uh, uh, the the natural trio, but uh, we 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 are we we as 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 natural collaborators. But we actually really it really worked out nicely, uh, and has and continues to work out nicely. We had a very nice trip up and um, had lots of fun in the train. I think we we. Um, really bothered the other people around us because we were having too much fun. But, um, okay, so um, I also wanted to just amplify one other thing that uh, the living text aspect of this, I mean, part of, of course, uh, Dorothy had to live with uh, some really rageful texts um, and had to uh, uh, really uh, grapple with them. But each of us, uh, uh, when we decided to do this project, we each decided to live with these texts um, as we were working on them, and then as we became, as they became part of our own corpus of learning and so on, we really have uh, they they live on with us. Uh, we 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 each time we come back to them. I come back to them um, to, uh, uh, over for uh, in many ways uh, for many different purposes. But okay, today did did we um, go? Okay, um, I'm going to start at the end of my of the of the uh, essay in question that I am dealing with on the question of women's labor, and here Hui um, uh, says uh, labor is a natural calling for women, but everyone, not just poor women, should labor. Okay, and so for the whole previous part of the essay, what she's written about is uh, is is labor as an oppression, as a form of oppression, as a form of um, uh, of hierarchy. But by the end of the essay, what she really wants to say is that labor is a natural calling. In other words, it's an ontology of work. It's a necessity for life. If you want to live, you must labor. You must work. She embeds labor, as Dorothy was saying, for her, and very unlike feminists that we come to know in the May 4th period, or even uh, um, 
uh, earlier during her time, she wants to recover marriage. She doesn't want women to, to escape the family. She wants to recover the family as the site for the ontology of labor, for where labor can be treated as a form of life itself, of creating and producing the conditions of life itself. And, uh, and it's only within the family, I think she, she says, uh, that, that equality in labor can be achieved. That doesn't mean that women do men's work or men do women's work. It means that everybody works in order to sustain, to live. Okay, to sustain themselves and to sustain the family. So here, labor is a natural calling for women, but everyone, not just poor women, should labor. When labor is borne only by some poor women, then it is a kind of subservient labor. In other words, when, in fact, labor becomes a form uh, that is that, that, uh, of subservience as an historical form rather than an ontological trans-historical form, that's when you get labor as a form of oppression. And she goes on in this last paragraph then to uh, proclaim later on that when employed labor is transformed into equal labor, then some people uh, would no longer be dependent on other people. Everyone would be independent. No one would have to rely on others, and no one would have to serve others. This would indeed be fortunate for the world. How can it be fortunate only for women? In other words, in her, uh, in her uh, estimation here, if everybody had to work, in other words, if there were not merely wealthy people who used the labor of others to sustain themselves uh, and to free themselves from labor, if everybody had to work, everybody had to work equally, uh, then the world itself would be able to uh, be more fortunate, it would be more communal, and, uh, and this then would also be fortunate for women. So the question of women's labor then is also a question of men's labor. It's a question of life itself. So if we go back then uh, to the more, more towards the beginning of the essay, um, she talks then about how, um, what, what page are we on? When, um, when we consider, okay, 70, 70, right, yeah, okay. When we consider the modern, uh, the modern situation of the various countries of Euro-America, is that it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and the use of girls as an instrument of, uh, as instruments of wealth, then the system is even more unjust. From the 19th century onward, the wealthy have embraced capital in order to accumulate more wealth. Here, then, what she wants to do is to turn labor from, an, uh, from a transhistorical ontology of life to labor in the sense of a waged labor, of an employed labor, as a form of hierarchy, as a form of subservience. And it is in the 19th century, as she says, that you have, then, the fall of labor, the definitive fall of labor, uh, from this ontological position to a position of, uh, of absolute hierarchy. And this fall, not the rise, the fall is because of the Euro-American, uh, Euro, because of the West, of Euro-America. In other words, unlike many other feminists of her time, women, men, 
uh, and intellectuals of her time, the West, or Euro-America, was not the site of, of saving. It did not provide the, the horizon for the saving of China. It was the signal for the final fall into subservience, hierarchy, and, uh, and, and oppression. Uh, because of capital accumulation, the, the logic of accumulation and the logic of capital. Wealth cannot be generated, she says, from one person. It must grow from the employ of the services of others in one's own interest and for one's own gain. In a word, it is poor people's labor power that is offered so the wealthy can accumulate more wealth. In the beginning, they used only men, but later extended the practice to female labor. Okay, so here, while Heng Zhen is very much an anarchist in this passage, she's not so much a Marxist as she, I mean, she's not at all really a Marxist, to the extent that Marxism and anarchism were indistinguishable in China at that time, but nevertheless, she's very much an, a Marx, a, an anarchist here, where labor is a, a form of, of work, and labor, uh, everybody has to labor, it's not just a form of labor power. When labor becomes labor power, however, in other words, when it becomes employed, that's when it becomes a form of, of, of hierarchy. We can surmise, she says, that women's service began for two primary re reasons. One is that in pre-modern times, machine industry was not yet developed and women had to spin and weave in their homes. This can be seen as free or voluntary employment. This is the ontology. This is the, the form in which it sustains family life, it sustains life itself. The materials that they produced were sold in the market. This was the condition for the freedom of labor and the conditions for the freedom of trade. However, then, factories arose, wealthy people used the black arts of pursuing profit to gain a victory over the poor, mechanization flourished and the poor were not well placed to take advantage, and then you have the, uh, the move then into the systematized, industrialized form, mechanized form of uh, labor hierarchy and of the fall from, uh, from, from uh, freedom uh, to uh, slavery or servitude, okay? And that's the fall uh, of the modern world. That's the modern fall, okay? Um, in these two short passages, then, you can see the, the uh, we, uh, who cannot see, she says, that the reasons for women's labor are unequal distribution of property as well as the crime of capitalists, okay? This is her anarchism, again, this is uh, the, the, the problem of property and capital are the two m twin problems that uh, underpin the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, subordination of women to uh, not only to men, but to capital, uh, to, uh, to hierarchy. And then she says uh, later on that the most strenuous labor was all being heaped onto the bodies of women how can this not be a major tragedy of the world? How is this not the case of the society of the wealthy using women as instruments of wealth accumulation? And so here then, the body of the woman becomes the laboring body, and that is the only body that, at least in this essay, that counts as a form of oppression. And, uh, and it is, and because women then have to work 
their bodies have to be used as a form of livelihood, and their bodies can be used either in work or as pro uh, in prostitution or because they are raped or because, and she, she details all of this and goes on at length about much of it, uh, that these various ways in which women are embodied as instruments of wealth accumulation, as wives, as concubines, as 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 daughters as, and so on that the that their principle of livelihood shengji becomes recedes farther and farther into the uh, uh, into the horizon that they have to work merely to eat rather than to live and so as uh, as she says in the final passage that I will uh, look at here then. As for recent times, livelihood is even more difficult to secure, and women who undertake this line of work are especially numerous. The line of work that she's talked about here is the uh, is factory work. Uh, for the traditional livelihood of weaving cloth and selling silk for food is far preferable to serving others. And so again, she her, the, the 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 thematic for her is really about work. Uh, that is uh, not so much ennobling, but work that is uh, that allows you to live, whereas labor uh, uh, crushes life and crushes the uh, uh, principle uh, of uh, livelihood and chases after uh, various other things. And poor women, then, for her, are the exemplar and become for her the way in which the embodied the the the, the body of the woman becomes uh, most uh, most clear, most clearly signaled for her, most clearly signified for her is the uh, ways in which uh, poor women then are made to serve. Um, and so again, I just want to uh, end by saying that for her, modernity. The, the life of industrialized society, the life of uh, mechanized society is only the newest way in which women's bodies are made to serve. It is not a liberating, it, she's not a liberal, okay? Liberals like Liang Qichao, whom we also um, uh, uh, um, translated in this uh, book, uh, Liang Qichao would say that if you, if, if women, are unproductive. You have to make women productive. He doesn't even see women's work, but he doesn't see that women actually work. Okay, <laughs> so um, so that uh, and that women, Chinese women, have worked from the dawn of time. Okay, he says women are unproductive. They have to be made productive. And and Heng uh, is saying no. Women have been productive all along, and women's bodies are the bodies upon which. Uh, productivity and uh, and and livelihood depends, uh, and so he, she's she's not a liberal in saying that women have to be put to work in the factory. She's saying the factories are merely another way in which women can be exploited, that women's bodies can be made to serve the accumulation of wealth by the wealthy. Um. Well, we turn to the next essay. Uh, I have selected two passages from, from it. So this was a natural uh, progression to uh, the question of women's liberation. Um, I was struck when I first read this essay 
uh, as to how he inter interrogated that the very idea of uh, liberation, it was not a given, uh, not something that was immediately desirable. It would have to be um, analyzed. And this is what she does in the essay. Um, I can't do justice to her argument because uh, she, 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 she makes a, uh, a um, rigorous argument for and against, for and against. Very interesting. Now, this is a, a passage in which she challenges people who uh, opposed women's liberation in the late Qing. Um, uh, and as you can see, she uh, gets at people's logic, you know, the logic of uh, their opposition. The main reason that men object to women's liberation is that they are concerned that once women obtain their freedom, they will become sexually promiscuous. That was a very common argument. Um, in fact, the stricter the controls, the more eager women are to break down such controls, jumping at the slightest opportunity to find an outlet for their sexual fantasy. I was amazed to see her adding details like so-and-so uh, in such such a county committed this and uh, <laughs> so she actually gave names of people. <laughs> so that was strange. But in any case, uh, to, to drive her argument home, and it's not unlike act of hiding something which precisely alerts a thief to its value and therefore intensify his desire to steal it. She has some, uh, uh, some insight, psychological insight there. I argue that women's sexual transgression is caused by their cloistering rather than by their freedom. You see, this is how she analyzes a logic. This is how her mind works. Um, and it makes no sense to say that women's liberation itself leads to sexual promiscuity. Not understanding this, the people of China are weary of liberating women. We must realize that the more women are cloistered, the further women's virtue deteriorates, thus hindering the character of women, Xing, from developing. I, I, uh, we uh, put the Romanized uh, um, uh, word Xing next in, in our translation, uh, uh, next to character of women. Uh, today, Nuxing is translated as femininity, but this is an instance to uh, us, alert us to the, you know, the um, uh, evolving uh, meanings of, of words uh, at that time. Um, so we can't simply seize on the character Nuxing and say, ha, that's femininity. No, 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 she is doing something else here. Nuxing was the meaning was flux at that time. Of course, this compound was borrowed from uh, Japanese kanji characters. And it, it would evolve uh, again after the May 4th uh, continuously uh, through today so that people can translate it as femininity. But it's totally misleading to translate it as femininity at this point, you can see from the uh, context. Now, this is her... Uh, uh, her logic doesn't mean that she simply defends the, the women's liberation. Um, uh, uh, over the past few years, the uh, gender studies scholars in mainland China have tended to treat Jin Tianhe's text, Women's Bell, as the foundational text 
of uh, uh, um, Chinese feminism. In other words, it was a, a man's text that created feminism. So uh, that uh, has been the consensus. And then uh, she, uh, well, uh, in the, on the question of women's liberation, He Yingzhen uh, uh, targets men like Jin Tianhe, Liang Qichao, and the language is there. Uh, we can't, uh, uh, we don't have the time to go over uh, uh, more details, but so there is a conversation there. So there's not just one feminism. It, from the very start, that it was contested what feminism was, in whose terms should liberation be formulated, all right? Now, uh, Rebecca just mentioned that uh, He Yinzhen, of course, was part of fem anarcho-feminist uh, uh, group, and she was um, uh, also connected with international anarchist movements. And they regularly re re reported uh, what was going on in Europe, in, in North America, and she was even indirectly through Japanese anarchists in touch with Emma Goldman. And Emma Goldman's journal, um, Mother Earth, uh, carried a note saying that uh, they recently heard that a journal called Natural Justice, created by some Chinese anarchists, uh, would publish and translate some of her essays. Okay, and indeed, uh, Emma Goldman's work was translated. But then, He Yinzhen's anarchism was not like some of the other anarchisms. You would have to read her uh, side by side with, uh, with read her anarchism side by side, by side with her uh, feminism. Now, another issue is, as we know, uh, the relationship between national liberation and women's liberation has always been fraught. Um, and people have uh, written tons of uh, uh, works on the subject. Hu um, Yinzhen was totally aware of this. And she was living at the time in Japan when the majority of Chinese elite uh, intellectuals were agitating against the Manchus uh, for the creation of a new republic. And then, um, a lot of these men uh, supported women's rights. And He Yinzhen was critical of these men. Um, I just wanted to mention one little bit, which is not in the, in, um, in the PowerPoint slide. Um, she argues that uh, women should not wait for men to come and liberate them, okay? You should take this in your own hand. Um, why? Uh, she says, uh, well, why sh she criticizes women who take pleasure in being used by men. When men come to them and uh, say, we come here to liberate you. Um, unaware of the true situation, um, there are those who foolishly believe that Chinese women are indebted to those men for setting them free and that they should be deeply grateful for the wonderful things that men have done for them. Uh, men like Liang Qichao and Jin Tianhe. And then it's very interesting, she said, this manner of reasoning is not unlike the argument made by those within the Manchu regime who advocate constitutional reform, just as the constitutional reform instrumentalizes the idea of a constitution and has no real intention to confer rights on all citizens. So does the male project of liberating men make similar use of 
the idea of liberation with no intention of conferring real rights on women. If you read the history of Republican China, the women who organized themselves into military uh, battalions who helped the Republican revolutionaries to defeat the Manchus to uh, create the new republic, and they, then immediately their rights, their suffrage rights were sort of deprived. Well, that was, yeah. So we don't have to go that far. We're talking about years before that. Um, now, so she also has no illusions about liberation. You see, it's a very complex situation, a dis discursive terrain where various groups take uh, positions on the question of women's liberation. So she has to grapple with all of those positions. Now, let's take a look at the next passage. Okay, so this is the, uh, she is quite aware of what was going on because uh, um, European women and American women were demanding women's suffrage rights. And uh, she, He Yun-Zhen, in, uh, was, was critical of this. On what ground? On the ground that Rebecca just uh, specified. Um, let us consider the Norwegian case. Is this the passage? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, Parliament, Parliament circumscribes women's right to vote and sets the age limit and the threshold of annual tax payments. Although one could argue for the merit of the age limit, the requirement of a certain level of tax payment indicates that those who pay taxes at the stipulated level would have to be property owners. Uh, remember, that was when Finnish women and Norwegian women had just won parliamentary seats. All right, It was celebrated as a a milestone in women's liberation movement. And she was being critical, and she says, uh, rich taxpayers come from the aristocracy, wealthy families or medium income households and above. Should women's right to vote be concentrated in the hands of a few rich ladies? My understanding of gender equality implies equality among all human beings. Am I going beyond the passage? Yeah. Okay which refers to the prospect of not only men no longer oppressing women, but also men no longer oppressed by other men, and women no longer oppressed by other women. If gender equality simply means that a minority of women may take political office and maintain an equilibrium of power with a minority of men who hold similar office, we should try to explain how the following happened among men, namely in today's world, uh, where there's uh, in today's world where there is difference between men who rule over other men and men who are ruled by them, the majority of the ruled in the world of men are demanding a revolution. As for the idea of equal division of power between men and women, most people seem to believe that since there are power holders among men, there should be among women as, as, as well. But did such powerful female sovereigns, sovereigns such as Queen Victoria of the British Empire or Empress Lu Zhi and Empress Wu Zetian in the dynastic history of China ever bring the slightest benefit to the majority of women? So she's, she just, she just uh, goes like that. Um, uh, and so, she, you see, it's a very complex position she's taking. What is uh, women's liberation? It's not uh, given. I think I'll just uh, stop here and... and um, okay. Invite uh, Ellen. Thank you. Come on. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mark, for welcoming me and Ellen for emailing me and asking me to come, and the three of you for having done this this work. Um, 
I will just maybe underscore what, what Mark said. It is the case, I have been to China as part of a Brown program. Um, my journal Differences has published a special issue on Chinese feminism. And when Ellen sent the email, I could spin my chair around and this book was on my shelf already. Um, but I had not read very much, I, I confess. Um, and in fact, this to be able to accept this op uh, uh, invitation means that then I could say, this is my central work. I have to now do this and, and was able to um, put aside other things in order to do it. And as you can see from my text, um, I have worked very hard. Um, and I also have a disciplinary um, difficulty beyond not knowing Chinese um, or the history and, and context of this material, which is that I'm a literary critic. So it's very, um, um, it's not part of my craft to attend to a text in translation in the, as closely as I have, and yet it's impossible for me not to try to attend closely. That's the, that's the method that I, that I have. So you'll see that in some of the questions. Although I have made a, a, a genuine effort to um, propose some very large questions um, that address to all three of you that don't depend on um, particular linguistic moments. But since we still have that um, question there, I'll actually, I'm going to triage my questions so that you all will have an opportunity um, also to ask questions. And I can bring some of the ones that don't make it back in if, if time um, permits. Um, but the first two questions both have to do um, with language. Um, and one has to do with the rhetorical question, which is very common in her discourse. What has Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, oh it's, oh, it's changed, I'm sorry. Well, you read it, just no. the very last thing that you read, Lydia. Yeah. Um, but did power, such powerful female sovereigns as Queen Victoria of the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera, what did they do to benefit the majority of women? Um, what could be more unjust under heaven? Um, could it, who cannot see? How can this not be a major tragedy? Again and again, the passages that you chose end with rhetorical questions. And that I find very interesting and would be interested to hear what, um, how you read that. The other question that I, that I want to put first, you may not um, actually want to speak to. Um, it has to do with uh, Nanu. 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 Um, which you describe on page 11 of your wonderful, wonderful introduction um, as a word, for me, I translated it um, uh, into jouissance, which is the word from French feminist theory that we do not translate. We say jouissance. Um, and when anyone does translate it, if even very great translators are tried. So Richard Howard tries in The Pleasure of the Text. He translates jouissance as bliss. It's, it's not good. So in my copy of The Pleasure of the Text, I've crossed out all the blisses, and I've put jouissance in. And um, Nanu is that kind. I'm, I'm just going to sound, I sound like Mork and Mindy, right? Na, nanu, Nanu. Um, but, but on page 11, you say that um, this is, is one of her um, contributions, an analytical category that she's contributing. And I, sh I would like to to reference, I think it was Rebecca, or maybe more than one of you, who, who spoke of um, this being living theory. And of course, for me, it's absolutely living theory because there's no sense in which I can um, contribute to any historical understanding. But insofar as this book can um, 
contribute to what feminist theory does in the future, that's exactly where my, my interest um, lies. And this is one of the concepts that she might contribute. Um, she uses it as a single conceptual mechanism, as both a noun and an adjective that lies at the foundation of all patriarchal abstractions and markings of distinction. All markings of distinction, not just gendered or sexed markings of distinction. All markings of distinction. These abstractions and markings apply to both men and women, but are no means, by no means limited to socially defined men and women. And in the end, we decided to leave Nanu untranslated in some situations. But none of you chose a passage that has the untranslated Nanu in it, which is interesting. So those are the two literary critic in a foreign language um, questions. The others are all um, much broader, and, th and there are so many, and some of them are very small. I'm quite curious as to why she was neglected. How has this silence lasted so long? And from what, from what I understand, not just from what you said, but from the introduction, a silence and a lack of interest, not just because she wasn't translated, but in China, um, or among readers of, of Chinese. Um, so you give just a tiny bit of information about her life and her formation. How did she become this amazingly um, erudite, um, scholar and powerful rhetorician. We, the power of the rhetoric comes across very much even in the, in the English translation. So that's um, one question. When I was reading it, at, at, as I was reading it um, this semester, I was also participating in a sem seminar at the Pembroke Center at Brown on the topic of fatigue, a very popular topic for academics and students. Um, but it's, the seminar is led by Joan Kopchak, and Joan is a very um, uh, prominent psychoanalytic um, feminist and, and film theorist. And Joan's thematic all through the seminar, because there are so many things one might read about fatigue, is that psychoanalysis is not a regional discourse. And she's going to explain to the rest of us, or persuade those of us who are not already persuaded, that it is not a regional discourse. Psychoanalysis is not merely about neuroses or sexuality. It is the inheritor of the European tradition's philosophical questions, and that's why we should attend to it. It speaks to everything. And as I was reading your translations and, and her wonderful essays, I very much felt that in this work, feminism is not a regional discourse. Um, it is a global discourse, a totalizing discourse. There are different terms to use for it. Uh, 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 in the old days, in the 70s, we used to call it a radical feminism, meaning feminism of the root. Um, and that puts it somewhat out of step with many of the things that are happening in, in feminist theory now. So I wonder if you might speak to that. Then, although, Rebecca is absolutely right, of course, that anarchism and Marxism need to be sharply distinguished. No one distinguishes them quite as sharply as the anarchists and the Marxists. And from one point of view, I think we could say that there is an alliance in, in at least insofar, not just in some of the critiques of capitalism, but insofar as they were very much agreed um, that reform was beside the point, that reform could, as, as many of the passages that all of you pointed to, um, reform could in entrench inequality and injustice as, as frequently as um, by dressing it up in some way or cleaning it up in some way, um, which I 
think puts her firmly with both Marxists and anarchists on the side of calling for revolution, um, which is to say violence. Um, and we did see the sentence about, um, again, very shocking um, to an outsider um, and perhaps less so to, to all of you, all Confucian teachings are teachings that kill people. Um, I didn't, I don't recall, and certainly not in the passages that you um, uh, focused on, that she actually calls for violent resistance. She seems, she doesn't, yeah. She, and that's kind of puzzling in a way, I suppose. She has very much set the stage for that to be um, the only conceivable um, outcome and quite legitimate given the violence um, that women's, women and many men suffer under the, under the current arrangement. Um, just two more. Um, I mentioned already that in the old days we used to speak about a kind of feminism that was a radical feminism that put the um, sexual asymmetry or patriarchy or phallocentrism um, at the origin of all the other modes of injustice and hegemony and inequality. Um, and one of the arguments that evolved in the wake of that had to do with whether feminism was a mode of modernism or a mode of postmodernism. And I fully understand that those terms, maybe especially, especially after postmodernism has been introduced as a term and it changes the meaning of modernism, that those are not terms that are completely um, native to her discourse. But one of the other things that comes across very strongly um, in, in the book, and I think was, um, it resonated through your, your readings, but maybe wasn't completely thematized, is what an internationalist she was, how very well informed she was about all kinds of things going on in all kinds of places in the world, and how she took that into her uh, mode of thinking. And so, um, wouldn't even probably accept the, the um, phrase I just used, not native to her own discourse. But I wonder if you could talk about how um, her feminism might be articulated across that um, division, which is a very active one now when people are trying to sort out the relationships between feminist theory, and you call her out as um, a feminist theorist in the most fundamental sense of the word. Um, the relationships between feminist theory, women's studies, and feminist politics. The very often fraught um, relationships between those three terms. Um, how does a figure who seems to be a feminist theorist in the most fundamental sense um, intervene in some of those quarrels about women's studies or feminist politics? Um, and finally, what kind of sexual politics would you say she advocates for? Um, we read the passage where she criticizes the critics of the struggle for women's liberation on the grounds that they are, um, they ha have a completely misbegotten understanding of what um, the consequences of uh, allowing we women freedom in the public um, realm would be. Um, and she, the, in passages that none of you really talked about, she's very, um, harsh and, and rigorous about prostitution and, and the sexual libertinage, basically, of, of at least wealthy men. And she points to the, the moment before um, the fall into history, in a way, when, when man and woman meant 
um, what now means husband and wife. Um, but I can't, and not just from having listened to you, but having read the, the volume now twice, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I know where Emma Goldman stood on, on the question of free love and sexual liberation, but I, I feel quite uncertain about where to position her. Um, actually, one more question, which goes back to Nanu, but now not so much about its absence from your passages, but um, how would you describe Nanu as a useful category of historical analysis? <laughs> which, for those of you who, who don't know Jones, uh, Joan Scott, who's mentioned actually in the introduction, is Joan's polemic for, um, for gender as a useful category of historical analysis in the American or Euro-American um, context. Now, Scott herself has since felt that that's no longer the case for um, gender, that it became reified and, and less and less useful as the, as the scholarship accrued. Um, but that might actually be an argument for exactly for turning to this new um, untranslatable term. So I'll stop there. Thank you. My pleasure, really, really, absolutely, such a pleasure. Do we, do we want to get some more questions? Like Alan suggested, or you don't really want to hear us again, do we? So, questions. Do you want to address the rhetorical issue or? Um, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I think that the He Yingzhen loves to use rhetorical questions as part of her logic of her argument. And I don't know if I can think about it in this way, um, since I'm not actually a specialist of late Qing text. Uh, maybe Alan Wintmer can help mm -hmm. us. Um, I think that we are dealing with a period when uh, writers such as the He Yingzhen, or even Liu Shipei or Qiu Jin were unhappy with what we now call classical Chinese or Wen Yan. And they, they are trying to find some adequate um, container a vehicle for for a more popular uh, performative kind of writing. So would rhetorical questions be one of the ways to add to the performative kind of polemical aspects to get people to think this way and then that way? It, certainly Liang Qitao used it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really a feature of late Qing texts. I don't know that it's not a feature of classical texts. I mean, one can think of plenty of Confucian passages and otherwise that use the rhetorical question, you know, uh, uh, form. But there's a, there's a linguistic uh, flux that's happening here, in, I mean, in, in late Qing uh, language in general. And uh, I, I think that in part because uh, there's a new form that's called journalism or media or, or press 
that is uh, a popularizing form. It's a form that is now being read by more people that perhaps the performative nature of textuality now is more, is more pronounced. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a good question that I don't know that I've yeah. thought about. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I want to just quickly uh, to respond to Alan's question about why Hei was neglected or has been neglected. Um, if we remember that passage that Dor Dorothy just showed us where Hei uh, says uh, Confucian scholarship killed people. And, and, and if we were to use her own language, then her memory was killed by Chinese scholarship. Uh, uh, um, for very complex reasons, because her feminism was n n could not be recuperated by nationalist uh, uh, discourse. Even in the second half of the 20th century? No, it, it would be extremely difficult because she was against nationalism. And she was, her, her position was at odds with all of those nationalist positions. Um, and so, uh, in, and that was one thing. Another thing is, uh, well, you explain why that's the case. Um, her journal, she uh, was the chief editor uh, of this journal, Natural Justice. And this was the journal that first uh, translated and published the Communist Manifesto. Um, but if you go to uh, uh, mainland Chinese official history of the translation of the Communist Manifesto, occasionally you would have a sort of a, a, a brief reference to it, but it would never be identified as, as, as the feminist journal that introduced communism and socialism to China. Taboo. Okay, so you, you, you're not supposed to open it up for more contested readings of how Chinese communism emerged. If you don't read Natural Justice, this was a journal that ran from 1907 through 1908. You would not be able to understand how revolutionary ideas traveled to China. Absolute necessary reading. Uh, I recently, well, this journal was also, has been unavailable. When we were doing the translation, we, we, we were missing issues and there was no way we could find them. And finally, I got in touch with Academia Sinica, um, with Wang Fansen uh, uh, in, in Taipei, uh, uh, begging him for sending us the missing issues. Um, those were the pieces that Dorothy translated on the revenge of women. And so um, this journal has not been reprinted or annotated or worked on uh, in a complete set. Um, uh, next month, um, this will be published. This is the first annotated edition that I did with a scholar in Yangzhou, which was um, He Yinzhen's hometown, as a scholar of uh, Liu Shipei and a scholar who worked uh, a lot on, on their, their work. So we're bringing out uh, the first annotated complete edition of uh, natural justice through um, the Renmin University Press. So this, well, just happens that it's coming up soon. So slowly we're reviving her memory so then people know better the, uh, uh, the, the level at which uh, the, feminist, uh, the discussion of feminism, uh, women's liberation and the revolution, socialism and anarchism and Marxism, uh, you know, how that discussion uh, went.
yeah, uh, in, in those early days. Um, she died quite young, and she was only in, she was in her early 20s when she wrote those pieces. Amazing. And then she died very young. Uh, we don't have detailed information as to what happened. Um, there are all kinds of stories about what happened after Liu Shipei died, her husband died, and she just um, disappeared. Uh, some stories would say she became a nun. Uh, went, went away, disappeared. Others say, said she collapsed on the campus of Beijing University because her husband used to be a, a professor there. Can I ask, I don't even know how shocking it would be if she had become a nun. That is, if Emma Goldman had become a nun, I would know how <laughs> and shocking that would, that would be. But, so, I mean, that's a very ignorant question. Well, you could tell me at dinner if it's too It was just a story. That there's no... There's um, no evidence. Okay. No. So no, no need to worry about how shocking it would be. But that goes right into your question of her sexual politics, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a deeply conflicted, and you're not the only one who is scratching your head. I think that, uh, you know, a various ideas of He Yingzhen really translates well in today's world. That's why you got so excited. But there are other ideas that maybe not so translate not so well, and I think her sexual politics is one of them. On the one hand, um, as in the passage that I introduced, she truly believed that uh, on some level, gender equality, equality between men and women, equals the uh, equality between husband and wife. There is a lot of slippage in the way that she conceptualized these two, uh, what to me are radically different forms of gendered relations. Um, so in that sense, she absolutely uphold uh, monogamy as women's liberation, in a sense, not just monogamy for women, for men, but monogamy for women as well. For not just monogamy for women, but monogamy for men as well. So that to her would have been um, you know, quite fantastic and heavenly. Uh, and as I said, she was deeply, deeply distressed and, and pained by the fact that so many women in Chinese society and transhistorically uh, were pining for the men in the cloistered uh, empty chambers. So there is this kind of, oh, isn't that the most inhumane treatment of it all? And yet, at the same time, she absolutely does not like to see women to sleep around as a way to get back at men. She absolutely has this kind of a prudish uh, um, attitude, uh, almost to the effects of, you know, why would they want to do that? They are trashing um, their bodies as if they were prostitutes. These liberated women of our times, I really don't understand them. She actually said so. Right. So sexual pleasure no. is not a... No. Um, but to, to, a, uh, to some extent, um, she really think that sexual pressure is important to liberate women, or to a liberated woman, and yet that pleasure has to be completely channeled within the monogamous uh, uh, marriage institution, just like Ted Cruz. <laughs> it is very, it's very odd. This is, this is what she, in 
all her 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 kind of logical uh, power truly believe in the whole. She holds these two um, together. When we were teaching these texts uh, originally several years back, I mean, our students continually butted their heads up against the, the fact of her prudishness because for most of them feminism did mean sexual liberation whereas for her this is just not the category that she works with I mean it's not the form of liberation that she works with and so that I was going to amplify what um, what uh, 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 Lydia said but, uh, that she's neglected because she wasn't she wasn't a nationalist she wasn't a Marxist and she wasn't the right kind of feminist either. So all of the, I mean, for either the early, middle, or late 20th century, or for the, uh, and so that um, her feminism uh, as a form of internationalism, for sure, um, and uh, it's a, but it's not, I, I would say it's probably not even a mode of modernism or postmodernism. I mean, I think, I think she she resists or she defies those kinds of um, those kinds of categories, um, and so that you know by the time she could have been rediscovered for a non-Marxist, uh, non-nationalist uh, feminism, feminism had moved into um, a different uh, into into a different realm, and she also didn't speak to those realms either. Um, she was not a modernizer. In other words, she did not believe that industrialization, accumulation of wealth, uh, all of those things would be liberatory, and so that she couldn't fit into that form either. Um, so that you know, the 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 fall of uh, Marxism. Uh, or of a particular form of Marxist feminism and its, uh, it, its replacement by a, a form of liberal or neoliberal feminism. She doesn't speak to that either. Would, so, would you yeah. call um, the, the argument that flows from Nanu a master narrative? Um, In the way that you know, a postmodernist waving his finger at a modernist would say, you, would still, you still are attached to a master narrative. Because that's what actually what made no. the question first come to okay. me. Well, I mean, I, what I wanted to say is that what you proposed at the very end of your of your talk of your uh, questions that Nanyu could be a useful category of historical analysis in the way that gender used to be. I think yes, that's a part of what we're proposing is that Nanyu is a way of uh, figuring uh, social relationships. As 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 a not as a narrative form, but as a form of um, of of conceptualizing social uh, social life uh, in general, um, and so it doesn't have to be a master narrative. In so far as we don't, I, I think we were talking about on the train that she doesn't have really a sense. She has a sense of the long historicity of conceptual formulations, she doesn't believe as uh, uh, in genetic origins. Um, that, and so that the, the, the form of an originary master narrative I don't think would occur to her and it, I don't think it would occur to any of us either. I think it's really about how you conceptualize social life. And for her, all social life has to be conceptualized as fundamentally nanued, as male-femaled. It has to be uh, fundamentally conceptualized as a um, as a, as socially related as a social relationship. 
uh, between men and women. Uh, one point that needs to be clarified uh, uh, is that um, uh, she's uh, making a deconstructive move here. That is, Nan Yu Yobie was this Confucian, fundamental Confucian logic, right? Right, mm -hmm. and she turns it around. Right, Yobie, uh, uh, she turns this around and sees everything as being primarily distinguished as political distinction. In other words, if we compare with the gender as a category, quickly people adopt this as an identity, right? Identity. But He Yunzhen would say, "Nan Nu Jieji." Okay, so it's one concept. Uh, so uh, this this is a class concept. She would say mm -hmm. it's not intersectional. It's one classic class concept. So we had to work with this, and and so it we it would be helpful to think of it as a verb. Ah. All right, Yunnan Nu. Um, distinction. The first political marking of peoples di distinguish that, you know, nanyu. And then everything else follows. And this is an oppressive distinction that she is discerning for us and she's uh, uh, using to explain the reinvention of patriarchy in, under capitalism. Mm -hmm. it's, again, the division of labor is nanyu. And she sees that. Um, so this is a deconstructive. Uh, uh, appropriation of this Confucian, fundamental Confucian concept. That's how I, I take it. But it's also then you can see from there why um, uh, she certainly was radical uh, and she was revolutionary uh, in a certain way. But for her, uh, the, uh, a revolution in China was not going to take care of the global part of capitalism. And so that while China had a particular form of nanuness, uh, the nanuness sort of um, uh, sort of uh, in the modern era had now become so global and was being globalized through the, the expansion of capitalism that you now had um, the inability of revolution in one country mm -hmm. to or in one sense, which is another reason why she didn't she was not she was neglected later on uh, in many ways. Mark, did you have a question? But, yes, I let's have a question. question. Just, yes. A great <laughs> I, I don't want to inter interrupt, but I did have uh, a, a couple of uh, comments. One sparked by the, your, your discussion of, of her rhetorical style, which is, uh, I'm not a literary specialist either. I'm a historian like, like, like Dorothy and Rebecca, but it seems quite fine to me. She writes quite well. Where did she learn to write? And where did she learn to write so well at such a young age? You said you don't know that. that Dorothy can tell us. <laughs> she studied that 17th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, she's very good. Writer. But I think that um, as you know, the work of Susan Mond um, and, and others have shown us that that. No, yes. I, there, there really is a progressive kind of outing of women writers from the 17th to the 19th century. In the 17th century, they just burst into the scene, the first generation of Chinese women who self-consciously wrote and published. Um, but by the time, at least in, in, in poetry, by the time we've come to the 19th century, they were no longer so timid and so accommodating. 
they were really criticizing the man for being uh, you know, stupid morons for losing the opium war. <laughs> they thought that if women were in charge, we would have beat the crap out of these barbarian uh, people lurking on our coast. So I think that um, by the time we've come to the 19th century, it is no longer um, such a problem for women from, from not even gentry families, but middling and above families to be expected to learn how to read and write. Of course. And we know that in large part because of your work and, and Susan's work. But in her particular case, I'm, I'm really curious, where did she go to school? Did she, who were her teachers? Do we know anything at all about, about that part of her? Upbringing, what her literary models were, anything. I think that um, since there are no records of her having attended a public school, she must have been homeschooled, which is actually rather common among um, affluent families. But um, Alan Whitmer might tell us more about why they didn't write novels <laughs> <laughs> and if it's related to kind of the whole because I think that it is an interesting question that potentially relates to um, whether gender or whether nanu is uh, an appropriate um, category to understand her own subject positions and her historical um, place. In many ways, I think that she was writing like a man. She had the authority of the Confucian classics and commentary tradition behind her, just that she used that authority to turn against the entire tradition itself. But she is just as inside of that tradition in the same ways that I am not. I just want to say that we, when we uh, just to, uh, we, when we taught this in our class, uh, we paired it with uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Second Sex, as a way of thinking about how a woman deconstructs and, and takes on the whole tradition of scho uh, the scholarly tradition, um, and and in in a feminist vein. And so it's it's slightly, in, I mean, it's, we we tried to not compare them to see who was the better feminist, but to, to you know, to, to, to think, to, or who's the better writer I, I, either, but to, to see, you know, how they, how, how they take on the tradition in which they have chosen to write, nevertheless. So, right. yes. Right. Mm -hmm. They didn't have much of a choice on, yeah. on, on one level. Right. So, You see the rape may for being evoked anymore? No. Well, no. Yeah. Uh, this is well, well before May 4th, right? Yeah. So, well before. Um, which is the, 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 the 1919 uh, cultural uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, you have a kind of proto, it seems to me, uh, 
consciousness of a, a shared womanhood, this expression, unyuso, mm -hmm. shown up here, which I was quite struck by. Mm -hmm. So what does this do to the scholarship of the 1990s on the, on the narrative of the oppressed woman as being a, the product of a May 4th consciousness? Mm -hmm. There certainly are, seem to be, there's evidence here of thinking like this 20 years or more, 20 years of mm. before. Mm -hmm. um, briefly, I think that our consciousness of women as victims came from the May 4th, but it didn't mean that they were the first. Um, in many ways, I think the He Yingzhen was a visionary. She was critiquing capitalism when China had only a handful of factories. <laughs> She was critiquing parliamentary politics when China was still an empire, and so on and so forth. So um, in many ways, she is ahead of her times. That also explains why she was so unpopular. So I think that in that sense, um, but it is, I think that it's very clear that by the time the May 4, people such as Hu Shi came along, they probably would not have read her. She might have already been forgotten. And that is the rapidity of the um, changes. Lu Xun uh, 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 must have read her. Really? Uh, yes, Lu Xun, because they were in Tokyo at the same time, and also because they were very close to Zhang Taiyan. Mm. And uh, uh, Liu Shipei and Lu Xun attended the same Zhang Taiyan uh, philological uh, session study group. And, uh, and According to one study, uh, Lu Xun and his brother Zhou Zoren tried to submit a translation uh, article to Natural Justice, to He Yinzhen's uh, journal. And therefore, you would not be surprised in the 1920s, Lu Xun would write an essay saying, what would happen after Nora uh, leaves home? And economic independence, uh, that was already in He Yinzhen many, many years before. It's also true that the fall of Liu Shipei from Grace meant that she fell with him. Uh, you know, uh, when when he when he was accused of being a collaborator with the man with uh, with um, what uh, the Qing, uh, and he was you know she, she she her star fell just as quickly as his did. And then when he died, she had nowhere to go, or so we believe. Um, just quickly about Ellen's point, I actually want to go back to to uh, Nanyu as a category of historical analysis, but I just want to add to another point of why she is so unpopular, is that she really um, um, was a pacifist. Mm. Um, she really thinks that militarism end up hurting uh, weak colonial countries such as China. Because in a military contest, to her, the weak one always end up losing. And also, um, in those countries, um, the women always end up being the first victims of um, military violence. And that, to a, certain, to a great extent, is still true, mm -hmm. actually. So that really didn't go well with, with the entire kind of formation of Chinese nationalism as the search for wealth and power, um, military well, she, and otherwise. She has, you know, this small uh, piece on feminist anti-militarism mm -hmm. that we, we translate here. And so she, she really is. She says militarism is especially senseless, and it's especially senseless for women. And 
here's why, and then she goes through a series of reasons. So, yeah, she's... Other questions? You, you, go ahead, somebody um, choose. So, Angel, she was paying attention to language, it seems a lot, and, and kind of the fact that it's embedded in the language. And I'm, I'm interested why you guys might theorize that she chose Nanu versus Nina well, you know, Nanyu Yubie, this is recognized. Uh, this is the Confucian concept. So then uh, 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 she is, uh, um, it, it's, it's not a, a question of uh, getting back at Confucianism by reversing the order, right, Nan, precisely because she's emphasizing uh, the distinction, uh, the act of making distinction, not identity. She's, she's not a theorist of identity. She's a theorist of how uh, uh, politics proceeds by making distinctions among people, you see? So then if she were to uh, make this illegible, like Yunnan, it would not serve that purpose. How would you crit critique Confucianism in, on its own terms, right? That's what. That's the rhetorical move she's making. So she's a deconstructionist. Yes, I was just going to say it's so crystal clear when you say it because the reversal yeah. is just the first step, and the displacement is exactly yes. Yeah, and she is so thorough, and she pursues this distinction at all levels of political order. Um, her critique of the state, which is still relevant to today's uh, work, for instance, uh, Catherine McKinnon's uh, uh, feminist state theory of the state. Right? She could have consulted. Of course, we, we didn't translate it before yeah. her, her book. Done this a little sooner. <laughs> exactly. We, we should have translated before Catherine McKinney wrote her feminist theory of the state. And so, um, and all levels of distinctions, so fundamental for our rethinking of identity, because the identity of politics, you know, it's, it's re it reifies a lot of those categories that it tried to dislodge, right? Whereas if you uh, think along with her, uh, naive distinction, then you see it not as people with identities, but you see it as political mechanism that distinguishes among people in very flexible terms. Okay. Okay. So, who? Yes. Okay. So the, the anecdote you told us, like she, maybe she later turned into a nun, 
she was also uh, thinking about the issue, the relationship between gender equality and some uh, like religious uh, teachings, like both Christianity and some indigenous Chinese religion. You want to address mm -hmm. this religion? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. <laughs> She doesn't deal with religion. She, uh, well, uh, 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 well, when she discusses monogamy, she uh, she talks about Christianity in in those ways, but not missionaries. She doesn't yeah. deal with missionaries. She, uh, yeah, she doesn't deal with religion really on its own terms in any real way. Uh, she's not. It's not part of. I, I mean, she was. This is why we believe more or less she was homeschooled because most of many of the girls' schools at that time in China were missionary uh, schools, and she there's no evidence that she was either at any of them or that religion really formed a part of uh, uh, of her. I mean, her vocabulary is suffused with certain kind of Buddhist vocabularies and so on, but that would that would have been true for any any educated uh, Chinese at the time. She was aware of what was going on in Japan for uh, women in factories, right? Mm -hmm. she, she was aware, but I don't recall her mentioning Korean women. Mm -hmm. I, I, that that I, I don't recall. Yeah, in, in the essay on, uh, uh, on women's labor and then the, another essay, the other essay that she wrote that we translated on um, uh, women's, ec uh, the economic essay, um, she cites a number of, uh, you know, the oppression of, of Japanese women, uh, Japanese women, fac factory labor, and so on, because she's living in Japan at the time, so she's quite aware of, of, of those. Um, uh, I don't think we saw other kinds of references. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. from it's from her reading of those news items. It's from her reading of of those uh, of their conditions of labor and their conditions of work and their conditions of life. That uh, she writes, uh, she cites from a uh, a a, um, a piece in a New York paper of the eighteen nineties, nineteen hundreds about uh, women. Uh, who work full time and yet also have to prostitute themselves because they can't make ends meet by merely by working legal jobs and so they have to work illegally. So she's she's aware of the various ways in which, uh, uh, but uh, I don't think she made any specific um, references either to Korea or to Africa or anywhere else. This was pre-internet age. Yeah, <laughs> she she was well informed by that standard, uh, and also it's not that she was sympathetic to these women. Uh, she approached her analysis with a rigor that would uh, pay attention uh, uh, to structural uh, uh, situations, structures of exploitation, structures of oppression. That's what she's getting at, right? Uh, in, including uh, 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 distinctions, and these are structural relations, and that's what she says. It's not whether you sympathize or not, um, you you know you like it or not. Um, this is a, a a a different kind of analysis. Um, I think that um, the the 
it might be true that uh, Ryusai Kenbo, a good wife and wise mother, uh, was one of the dominant discourses but let's, in Japan, but let's not forget that it was a modern discourse invented by Meiji era reformers. So I think that there are many uh, alternatives um, to, uh, uh, that informed her critique. Uh, anarchism, mm -hmm. primarily. She, she was very active in anarchist feminist circles in Japan. There were quite a few um, anarchist, uh, Japanese anarchist feminists, and uh, she was extraordinarily well connected to them. And so she was obviously, I mean, she was a critic of Confucianism, so it, she wasn't generating her critique of Confucianism out of... Confucianism, she was generating it from within, but also from outside of Confucianism, and from a critique uh, that that also, um, well, the way we put it in our introduction is about the worlds that she inhabits. She simultaneously inhabits many worlds at that time. We all do, but at that time, we 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 undertook to try to figure out what kind of worlds she under she she lived in. And one of those worlds was the world of anarchism and of radical of radical discourse and radical um, radical critique, not only of indigenous or traditional sources, but uh, we have to remember that anarchism critiqued Western, uh, you know, mainstream Western philosophies, mainstream Western uh, liberalism, and so on. So if the anarchism was a radical critique of the modern world. And it, it, this is, she was very, uh, I mean, we can trace, she, she read, uh, she read the, the classic tests. So she read Proudhon, she read the classic tests of anarchism, for sure. Yeah. I uh, mean, uh, in, in some versions of translation. If, if you're curious, um, this new edition, um, when I uh, annotated this new edition, I, uh, it was extremely difficult to track down the sources that she used, but I was able, did my best to track them down in the footnotes. And if you glance through the footnotes, then you sort of know what she was reading. How do we explain or how would He Yingzhen explain it? Well, I can tell you what I think, but it's not what He Yingzhen would have thought. So maybe we could uh, discuss this in private. Yeah. yeah. That's that. That's you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you do. You do feet. <laughs> you do hands. <laughs> um, interesting.
interestingly, interestingly, she didn't like it, but it wasn't the the a, a major um, cause of her disenchantment. To her, um, so many other uh, kind of fundamental problems faced kind of the the existential. Um, kind of the, the fundamental existence of women in Chinese culture and Chinese history, such as um, being shut out from, from everything that mattered to that tradition itself. So um, it, this is also another striking contrast between her and some of her other you know, contemporary reformers who saw anti-foot binding as the way to liberate women. And He Yingchen basically said, well, it's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? Just to unwrap the binding cloth while women are still you know, firmly entrenched in these systems of inequality, all of which she had no way of escaping. We chose our um, subtitle very specifically to say essential text in transnational theory and not to have it essential text in Chinese feminist theory or anything else. We wanted it to be, so our, our hope was to make her living a living text for our time as well. And uh, that's sort of a uh, glib answer, but... <laughs> uh, yes, that's our hope. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Look, we're confronted with some of the same situations that you know, she, she herself lived through, and her critiques are still relevant to us. Uh, uh, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. I, I, I forgot to mention Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Entirely relevant, uh, right? Her critique of parliamentary you know, uh, system, of course, coming from an anarchist uh, perspective. But then there, there uh, this fundamental feminist insight uh, uh, as as to the structures of oppression, which should not be 
conceived on the basis of identity. It's always a political move when you make a distinction. Um, the question she poses is, why is it that throughout history, all the way from her critique of Confucianism, all the way to today's, if she were alive, she would have critiqued today's global capitalism. Why is it that labor is based, labor divisions continues to be based on this kind of structural of oppression, right? Uh, women are always the victims of, the, of that, right? So I think her, her critiques, critique is uh, uh, relevant, not only relevant, will re enrich our thinking about feminist uh, theory today, both in, in the feminist critique of the state, feminist critique of the political economy, and, and feminist critique of the foundations of scholarship, the gendered identity of scholarship. I don't think this has been uh, raised as much. I mean, in the 70s, they raised that you know, in literature, and they, they tried to bring that, but it's not fundamentally across the board, scholarship. What is the gender of scholarship? That's the question. That I, I think these questions are entirely relevant. It, it was also very much our purpose to bring uh, Chinese uh, theorizing into uh, the center of uh, theorizing in general. We didn't. We wanted to de-ghettoize China from you know its sort of uh, oh you guys do China we do actual stuff um, and so you know because as we all know we all inhabit the academy and we know how marginalized still even though China is you know acknowledged oh yeah China is pretty important but you do China, so you're not. Um, you know, so that we all know how, how that works in the academy and, so that, and how divisions of uh, knowledge production and so on and so forth work in the academy. And so we really wanted to bring China uh, at, to the extent that the three of us are capable of, of doing that. We wanted to um, bring uh, China into a, the center of theorizing its, uh, you know, uh, uh, feminist theorizing itself. We also make interventions in China, in mainland China, mm -hmm. the three of us also speaking mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. uh, hoping that we, we could uh, also participate in, in the discussion of uh, feminist theory over there. Mm -hmm. and, and this book too, hopefully young people will finally uh, have something in front of them because it was extremely difficult for scholars even to get hold of mm -hmm. any of the texts. So now it will be available, we'll see what happens. We went to the, one of the big uh, feminist uh, conferences at Fudan. Well, uh, that was, when was it? 2000, yeah, in 2009, was it? Or 2000, when, when was that? That was something year, like that. year after South, right? In any case, yes. One, one, at, at early on in the project, we, we went to, uh, and we talked, and uh, the three of us, and Gail Hershatter was our discussant. And uh, we had a full, full, full house, and you know, uh, like 200 people were there. And we asked before we began, "Who's ever heard of He Jin uh, or He Jin, as she was, as, as she's uh, more commonly known?" And maybe three people, and they'd only heard of her because uh, she was Doshu Pei's wife. And so uh, we were, it was, uh, you know, and so at the end of that two-hour seminar or, or, or panel that we had there, you know, people were pretty excited about, you know, for the first time that they had really, you know, heard about a, a new woman. 
uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, a new figure in uh, late Qing history and in feminist history that they could, uh, uh, that they could grapple with. I'm very sorry to intervene, but I'm getting the word that it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, the, the place has to be put, put away, so to speak, and the person that has to do that has to go home. So I think we're allowed to continue the conversation out in the hall. I mean, just up the stairs and out in the hall. Uh, it's not quite as satisfactory, but it would still be able to go on. So I want to take this moment to thank Mark for coming over from his deanly post to to uh, introduce and our three who traveled so happily from New York and will travel back happily tomorrow, I guess, and Ellen for coming up from Brown. It's been very nice to see old friends again and to thank the audience for the wonderful questions and uh, hope we can somehow continue. Okay. Watch it. Questions. Wow.